0: So, yeah, so you do uh, direct primary care, right? Um, Correct, direct primary is, care. Yeah, which is an upfront fee. Um, I guess, you know, how does something like direct primary care work different? Or, or what advantage is it to the patient uh, in direct primary care versus what a lot of people are used to?
1: Sure. Well, I think the biggest benefit is you have a doctor that's working for you and not the insurance companies. Or the medical industrial complex, so you have that you, know, you have that direct direct relationship with the physician. So there is some there is some reassurance that they're and not to sound too snarky, but if if a physician uh, takes assignment or payment from an insurance company, then that's who they work for. They don't work for the patient. They work for Anthem or Cigna or United Healthcare. And they, you know, agree by contractual, um, by contractual agreement to, to take assignment or payment and then to follow all the rules that that particular insurance policy dictates about the provision of care. So um, with the direct primary care, th- with that model, you know, emphasizes this direct relationship between patients and the physician. So you bypass the traditional insurance system by paying your monthly or depending upon the office or annual membership fee, um, you know, gaining essentially near unrestricted access to a wide variety of services. So, you know, comprehensive care, preventive care, routine checkups, urgent care, and sometimes depending upon state and locality, even diagnostic tests and procedures. So, you don't have the shackle, if you will, of a insurance claim, co-payment deductible, coinsurance, uh, X, Y, and Z. You don't have that shackle. So the the, the mathematical line between patient and receiving care is, is very straight. It's not a Rube Goldberg apparatus where someone has to stand on one leg with their tongue sticking out and hoping that the mouse trap doesn't come down and jam them in the nose. Um, So the patients get more personalized care. There's a stronger patient-physician relationship. There's, uh, you know, deeper level of uh, let's say deeper level of understanding, but more nuanced understanding. And by and large, the visits are not seven minutes, which is what physicians who work for insurance companies are forced to do, because they have to see they have to see patients in volume in order to make up their you know they're make up for their operating expenses. Um, you know they've got to have 53 million staff people, you know, working in the office to submit claims and resubmit claims and fight for the claim and fight to get paid for this. That by the time the by the time they get paid, they've got to see an extra 50 people before they go home at night to make that work. So, I mean, it really comes down to um, removing obstacles for the provision of healthcare. I think it's what it comes down to.
0: Yeah, um yeah, it seems like the more that I read about healthcare, it, it seems like the, the big problem is the the buyer of healthcare isn't the recipient of Correct. that care. Correct. So there's that disconnect where um and and what I've kind of seen is it if you have the buyer that, that is the recipient of the care, there's a downward pressure on the price because the, the patient will, you know, if they could see the price in front of them and they were buying it themselves, they're less likely to, to get screwed. Like they're less likely to kind of get scammed. Right. Um, Right. You'll you'll kind of hear about things like um, I remember there was like some, crazy like hospital bill where they paid uh, like hundreds of dollars for a, a cup of coffee. And right. it, it was probably just an error, but it was like the insurance covered it. So the patient, them, the individual patient doesn't care, but that right. those types of costs probably get filtered into the whole revenue of, of the insurance. And then that gets ultimately it's the, it's the individual that pays the insurance premium. So, right. So, Let me ask you this question. If we were to
1: mandate that um, State Farm, I'll pick on State Farm car insurance for no reason other than that's what popped into my head. We said, okay, State Farm, you gotta start paying for oil changes and engine tune-ups and windshield wipers and the windshield wiper fluid and uh, all this sort of stuff. Do you think the cost of those services would change? If we asked, if we told State Farm they had to pay for them, because you better believe it. So then State Farm would negotiate with all of the mechanic shops for a negotiable price. uh, And the cost of that would go up because now they're absorbing a different level of services. And then the $20 oil change now becomes $200. Yeah. You know, so that doesn't make it, that doesn't make any sense. So it doesn't make any sense to say, if I'm able to provide primary care very cost effectively, then i, I don't i don't I don't quite understand um, how that can't be done to, for everybody. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, so it's it's because at the beginning you you said that it it allows for more personalized care, probably more um, I don't know more in tune with what the patient needs. But the, I've always kind of thought about the cost of it, but I Completely. guess um, it, it goes, It it um, a more direct version of care could probably help in, in both of those, in both aspects, right? Um, so, wh- I mean, wh- what do you think are the hurdles faced, um, like what's stopping patients who want uh, lower prices and more personalized care from getting it? Is it just well? A, so uh, I think
1: yeah. I think the biggest thing is the collusion of keeping that information away from patients. So I'll use I'll use our state as an example. Several years ago, uh, the legislature passed through a, and I, I don't remember the exact name of the of the bill, but a a pricing transparency bill, so that uh, patient X could call up the hospital and say, I want a reasonable cost estimate for this service. Okay, that was passed into law, oh, I don't know, a handful of years ago. Never enforced. Patients would call. Hospitals were, were under no obligation, hospitals, labs, et cetera. There was no, there was no pain point for them to actually comply with that law. Fast forward a couple of years ago now, another pricing transparency bill gets put in. There's still no enforcement. So you call up and you call up ABC hospital and say, I want to know how much a chest x-ray is. There are several obstacles there. Well, what kind of chest x-ray do you want? I don't know. My doctor told me I needed a chest x-ray. Well, is that a two view or is that a one view? I don't know. My doctor told me I wanted a chest x-ray. Uh, well, you know, you're gonna get it here, you're gonna get it there. What's the diagnosis, et cetera, et cetera? So there are lots of obstacles to patients because when you call up and say, I need a chest x-ray, that that's a pretty clear definition for you. I need a chest X-ray, but in our world, is it a single view? Is it a PA? Is it an AP? Is it a lateral? Like exactly what kind of X-ray is it or what kind of cholesterol test is it? And that information is hidden from patients. You know, w- which of the six cholesterol panels do you need to have done? So that's number one. And then the number, number two, the people that they talk to probably don't even know the answer. You know, when I have students come here, I ask them, to call over to the local labs and hospitals and say, uh, I need, my doctor told me I needed a cholesterol test. Could you please tell me how much that is? And to date, over the past, however many years I've been doing direct primary care and however many years it's been since those pieces of legislation come through, no student has been able to get an answer. Why not? So The people they talk to say, well, we don't have the answer in front of us, we'll call you back and they never do. So that's probably the biggest, one of the biggest obstacles to, and it's really, it's intentional, it's intentional, um, it's intentional hiding of knowledge. Like they don't, I don't really think they want people to know the industrial complex. I mean, the medical industrial complex doesn't want patients to know because then patients will complain. Why is it costing me $100 for a cup of coffee? I can get it down at Irving for $1.25. Well, yeah, but that's not hospital coffee. I know. That's why I'm going to go out in the Irving because it's a whole lot better than the hospital coffee. Uh, so I think that's part of it. And the other part of the intentional ignorance is um, the people providing the care. Doctors don't know what, t- what things cost. Nurses don't know what things cost. And that's hidden from them, too. So you go in to see your doctor and the doctor says, I need to have, he says, you need to have your cholesterol test done. Well, how much do you think that is, doc? Well, I have no idea. Call the business office. So the people that are telling you you should have something done are, that knowledge is not passed to them either. Well, how much do you think a chest x-ray costs, doctor? Well, I have no idea. Call the business office. So, but I, I think a lot of that is intentional by the healthcare industry. We don't want people to know because we want to make backroom deals and collusion to hide the information from the people that have to pay for it. We want to keep everything in our little, in our little cesspool, and we don't want other ones to find out about it. Because if they found out about it, if they found out about it, they'd be asking Walmart, "Why do you charge four times the amount that Dr. Forbus charges for Lisinopril? Why?" Cause you'll be a lot more purchasing power over that particular medication than he'll ever have, but he's one quarter the price. Why is that?
0: You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you compare it with anything else. Like I I always thought like, let's say you have an x-ray. Why? Like I should be able to go online, go to the website at uh, ABC yeah. hospital and see all the prices and then sign up for a slot nine uh, o'clock tomorrow. Correct. Right? Correct. Correct. You compare it with any industry that's like relatively free. Like it would be like if I went to a restaurant and, uh, you know, and before they had me sign a bunch of forms and check my, you know, food insurance and yep. then uh, I go to the menu and there are no prices on the menu. Correct. And you eat um, the meal
1: and then they give you the bill afterwards.
0: Yeah. But better yet, you eat the
1: meal, you go home, then they send you a bill in a couple of weeks. that says, Oh, you didn't pay this yet. You got. You have to pay this within thirty days, which is now two weeks, or we're going to tack on another, whatever, for late payment. Um, have you heard of Crowd Health? I've heard of that term. I'm not. Is it a or- particular organization?
0: It's a company that is uh, sort of an alternative to health insurance. Oh, actually, you know what? I think that just came across my email. I think.
1: Yeah, I want to say that just came across my radar. That's why maybe why it's familiar.
0: Yeah. The idea is instead of buying health insurance, you you buy crowd health and you sort of I think you pay uh, a monthly fee that goes into like a pool that you can draw from if you go to the hospital and then people will like voluntarily fund your uh, your visit. But I think the difference is you pay cash up front. Well, that's very
1: similar. That's very similar to a lot of the, um, the health sharing ministries where, yes, you know, like Sidera or Zion or MediShare or whatever, Samaritan Health. Yeah. That sounds very similar.
0: Yeah. And, and I think you can also see like, um, this guy, you know, say this guy's in the hospital with a broken tibia, but he's paid for all these other people. So I'm going to chip in for him. So it becomes this weird, like sort of um, communal payment. But then the, the thing that I find most interesting is because they're paying cash up front, they, they get these, they get cheaper prices. Um, right. I think. Um, well, they should. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I don't know. I, I looked at things like that or things like what you're doing. Um, and I get excited about things. Um, Cause I, I'd want to see change in, in the sector, some sort of large scale change. I, do you have do you uh, like think about this and see oh yeah, maybe anticipate where things are headed? Oh totally. i I've I've
1: almost I almost, I almost have the solution. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I almost
0: have it. Okay. Because it's always
1: fine, it's always being fine-tuned because you have to account for you have to account <clears throat> for variables that you can't anticipate. So you always have that, you always got to have that fudge factor in there. But here's my working knowledge. So number one, insurance companies stop paying for primary care. So primary care is not paid for anymore. That's number one, which most people have heart attacks when I say that. And I say that because it's can be done so much more cost effectively outside the current third party payer system. And This direct primary care is a great example of how it can be done significantly cheaper. So that's number one. Number two, you have, for want of a better term, and I don't know, you got to figure out which terms are going to be acceptable to people on one side of the political aisle as well as the other side of the political aisle. But I'm going to use the term a health savings account, even though that's not a good term for some, but that's the only thing I can think of at the moment. So you have a baby. And your baby is automatically given a health savings account at birth. Okay, and you have you or whoever else has the ability to put money into that account that are you that's used for health-related care. Okay, and you can even argue, which I wouldn't have any argument about, that the government puts five hundred bucks in there for every kid that's born. Okay, and then. You put 500 bucks in, and your aunt puts 500 bucks in, and your uncle Tommy puts 25 bucks. I mean, people can put into this, um, but it can only be taken out for healthcare expenses, okay? And if you allow that to effervesce over the course of a child's life, by the time, let's say you put a th- you you put a thousand a thousand bucks went into that account. Every year for the first kid's first six or seven years of life. And then no one else put anything in. By the time that kid's 18, that's a multi-million dollar health savings account. I mean, just simple compound math. So this is this oh. is money that's invested? No, just yeah, just put it into a, you know, some kind of bank account, if you will. If you wanted to invest it, that's fine. But just let's just use the argument you put it in the local credit union and it gains. Know some paltry percent of interest, <clears throat> but it kind of goes back in a way to I'm saving a penny and I double my penny every day that, after that for a month. I mean, the comp, I mean, a little hyperbolic here. Where, where's the just, interest but, coming from? Just like a regular bank account. Okay. Yeah. So let's say, let's say you only get 1% interest on that money. Well, yeah, but over the course of time, that interest rate is going to fluctuate back and forth, but let's just say it stays at 1%. That's still a significant amount of growth over the course of 18 years or even longer, depends on when they use it. So, that's not a solution for everybody, but it's a solution for a large percentage of the population where that money is set aside for specific purposes <clears throat> that can then be pulled out for specific healthcare expenditures. So, you're taking You are you you are removing that cost from the greater healthcare environment. Does that make any sense? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. So it's it's plus the institution that you put the money in is able to maneuver that for their own purposes. You know they can invest in other loans or invest in whatever. So that's number two. Number three, uh, more doctors doing direct primary care. So let every every state, every doctor, every, every state should allow, which most do, patients uh, physicians to practice in direct primary care. Not all states allow you to dispense. So that's going to get fixed. So there's no reason why a doctor can't dispense medications out of their office. That's what we did for tons of years until state politicians wanted control, and they restricted that. So Massachusetts, for example, can't dispense. My question, how come? Why can't I? Like what's you think I'm not smart enough to dispense medications that I'm prescribing out of my own office? This is just this is lobbying, right? It's lobbying. Right. Yeah, it's complete lobbying. So my question was, why why can't why are you restricting my practice of medicine? Well, probably the pharmacy board doesn't like it and Walmart doesn't like it and Anthem doesn't like it. Well, tough luck. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> tough luck. So you ought to be able to do that.
0: Yeah, you um I, I wrote a I wrote a blog post once about uh the the chemotherapy drug imatinib. Um I think if you take a year's course it costs over a hundred thousand dollars. Yep. Um the cost of production over that time period is about two hundred yep. um, and fifty dollars. Yeah. Um and then you, you I mean. Obviously, the pra- the patient, you know, given that they have cancer and that's insured, they're not paying that hundred k. But but, um, you know, the the policyholder at that who you know whoever's paying into that insurance company is paying that amount through their premium. Correct. It seems like I mean, there's so much to be saved if you were able so, to cut out the middleman, with, uh, specifically just with pres- prescription drugs.
1: Yeah, you know. So on the one hand, I would never. I would never want to advocate that you restrict the profit margin, the profit making of an of an organization. I would counter back that we need more competition because it's the competition that will drive the cost down. Yes. You know, so if we're rather than say you're a bad pharmaceutical company by charging an enormous amount of money, I would say make more pharmaceutical companies. You know, because that it's the competition that's going to drive that down, not political power.
0: Well, I mean, isn't it patent law, right? They get it for yeah. 30 years. Yeah, I think.
1: If they get some kind of patent law for a drug. The patent comes up, they tweak a little molecule, they add a little bit of this, and they get another seven years. I mean, that's gaming, that's gaming our current system. So rather than, I would say, solve the problem rather than coerce the person providing the product. So why do we have medications that are approved for use in europe but not approved here why
0: i didn't know that was a thing oh yeah what yeah. is that what? what is that
1: so the fda has medications that they that are have been in use in europe for a decade that they will not approve here why so my question, exactly <laughs> why it's good enough for the Fill in the blank European country, but it's not good enough for us, or they're not paying you enough on the FDA commission. I mean, just tell me what it is. If there's a valid safety concern, sure, then be transparent about that. But th- there's no answer. Oh,
0: so maybe I mean, are you saying you know it's possible that that, that the introduction of that drug could maybe increase market competition, which uh, Bingo. The, the the FDA, Bingo. The, the, the FDA people that possibly bingo. maybe sat on the board of bingo moderna last year bingo. Are, are not for bingo. that bingo so fill in the
1: blank politician uh the crossover between politics and the medical industrial complex or pharmaceutical industry is pretty incestuous you can have any of your listeners just google and they'll see all listing of all the people oh that was the former FDA chairman and now they're on the board of fill in the blank, or that was the former, this, and now they're over here. you can't tell me that there is not. That, that that's not funny. Let's put it that way.
0: It's it's uh uh where they say one big club and you're not in it. I Bingo. Think. Yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> there are rules. There are rules for you and I,
0: and there are rules for other people. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, and, that process of, you know, the patents, uh, sort of waning, and then you tweak the drug and you're able to extend it by Correct. five, 10 years. That's called evergreening. Um, yep. and there's also, I mean, there's a lot of money spent on that. So you think about like, you know, the amount of the amount that's spent on evergreening or on, you know, le- legal teams trying to protect their patents. And if you could just spend that toward research and development, um you think you'd have more innovation if you're able to somehow i don't know um shorten the patents or something um well you know it's one of those things that um let's think about a different industry
1: um okay toyota is still allowed to make an internal combustion engine correct sure and ford is too correct yes and gm is right Yes. So, you know, there's going to be some kind of nuance about we want we we have a patent on this particular widget, but we can still build an we can still build an internal combustion engine. I can still build electric vehicle if I want to start a company. So there's got to be some kind of protection for intellectual property. Don't get me wrong, but that doesn't mean other people can't do something. <laughs> and, the, and the way it happens now
0: is when well, we come up with this, you can't do anything with it yeah yeah I mean it's an interesting debate because because you do want to have some sort of incentive to innovate if if once right. you create something, uh you can no longer make a profit off it because everyone else can just copy you. Uh, uh-uh. I don't know that then you know how how do you have a pharmaceutical company in the first place? so it's I don't know really the solution to that. well, um, I think
1: one of the other you know one of the other things is really. <sighs> something has to be done about the collusion with lobbying. Something has to be done about that because uh, there is an incredible amount of money flowing from pharmaceuticals to politicians' pockets. I, I You'll have to probably look it up, but I remember a few years ago, there was, I don't even remember who published it, but the only reason I remember it is because it involved Pfizer and Pfizer of course was involved in the COVID vaccine and things. So that's why, that's why I, re- I remember some big details about this. The amount of money that flowed from pharmaceutical companies to the, to the lining of politicians pockets is incredibly high, incredibly high. well, you could also look and see who's on the board of Pfizer at the moment, if you like, and you'll probably see some former politicians names on there.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, yeah. so I don't mean to pick on Pfizer, but I'm I'm picking on the process, if you will. You know, I'm picking, yeah. on, the, you know, you could put Amgen in there. You could put Johnson and Johnson in there. You could put any of these companies in there. Now, I think the FBI is going to be knocking on my door pretty soon. But
0: <laughs> um,
1: and, yeah, you know, I
0: don't it's, know. And it's, it's Democrats and Republicans, you
1: know,
0: yeah. and so. Yeah. I don't know that I'm too optimistic of uh Washington DC solving this problem i i think no, they're not. <laughs> i think innovation is is always oh. probably a, a a more optimistic route if you can just i don't know if you can produce if you can 3d print a drug right then the the cost of production is going to go to you know to the floor right, right. um if you can you know, proliferate a product such so that it can just be made everywhere. I think that's kind of um I don't know. That gives me more hope than than well getting rid of corruption and collusion. Well,
1: so the other thing too, when you think about the healthcare dollar, we've been we've been kind of hammering the pharmaceutical industry, which is with is with merit, don't get me wrong, but actually that's a very, very small percentage of the overall healthcare dollar. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of like eight or 10 cents of the healthcare dollar is actually the pharmaceutical industry. The largest, um, well, I should say largest cause someone on the one of your listeners will call me out and say that I lied. Cause I said, largest instead of one of.
0: Nobody's uh, going to listen to this anyway. So just, not gonna listen to you're yeah. like,
1: you're going to be, you're going to be the next Joe Rogan. Don't worry about it.
0: Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> no, but this is epi- this is episode number one, by the way. So we're, uh, so we're starting off pretty, this. this is quite ambitious.
1: Uh, I'm going to ask, ask this question. What is the largest, the fast, largest and fastest growing profession in
0: healthcare? Um, I'll give you three guesses. Profession. Yep. I would, I'm going to say um, uh, insurance ad administrator. You're darn close.
1: Administration of healthcare services in general, three, 3,000% 3, increase. So that's not doctors. That's not nurses. That's not therapists. That's not pharmacists. It's the people sitting in the back office telling all of these other folks what to do and how to do it. Yeah, that's crazy.
0: Yeah, I I remember they in med school they showed us this graph of doctors since 1970 and then uh, healthcare admins, and you see doctors. It's you know it's kind of maybe a steady rise, not very not very much admins it's gone exponential it's just exploded yeah. Yeah. and um you know not to and there's uh, where the money's going that's wrong. and there's yeah yeah um and and ultimately what are they providing to the patient nothing i mean nothing pap- paperwork <laughs> yeah <right? laughs>
1: no but they're not providing the care they're not uh you know that they're, they're not doing any of that they are simply sitting back and administering healthcare?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, so a lot, uh, you know, this is why I think healthcare is something that I wanna learn more about and investigate more is because there's so much, uh, <laughs> first of all, there's so much to be done. Right. Uh, so there's a lot of room for me to, you know, talk about. and um, And it's so confusing that i can always keep learning because i I don't totally understand all of it
1: (laughs) well and Um, i think that's you know that's part of that's part of the ruse is we don't know we have rules to the game we don't want you to tell the rules to the game we'll give you a couple rules but then we'll tell you when you violated the rules that we didn't tell you that you have to follow if that makes any it's just yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah it it's it's (laughs) It's so convoluted that, um, which is another, you know, another reason we're in the mess is that it's so convoluted that no one can understand. Can even the people that are, that
0: are, that are, even the people that are making the rules don't even understand what the rules are. Can we simplify Let's, let's just, let's visit that graph again of the, of the admins exploding, right? Yeah. Can you, oh, can you, can you give me a select one or a few causes of that just in, oh, in sure. Graph?
1: if they, there are some real practical solutions behind that have one prior authorization form for that that is ubiquitously accepted or for that matter uh, get rid of the prior authorization process completely meaning for medications well i shouldn't say completely because there probably are situations where you want to have some utilization of services review i don't i want to get rid of that completely but if I am your physician and I have determined that a course of treatment is most appropriate, I'm one that examined you, went to the went to medical school and determined the appropriateness of that, not a high school graduate who's filling out a check form. So why do we have to go through the process? Who are they to tell you and I that you have to fail these other treatments first? Yeah. Because failure of those other treatments could mean that you are not around. For any other treatments, because
0: now you're pushing up the roots of daisies, it should be a menu, right? You pick the treatment that you, yeah, yeah.
1: You know, so I mean, that's number one. I think number two, the people in the the people in the seats of 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 decision making should be the folks that are familiar with the work that needs to be done. So, for example, Eisenhower. I'm going to quote, kind of mess his quote up a bit. But he essentially said it's pretty easy to manage a farm from Washington. A whole lot harder when the hose in your hand. So the people in the decision making should be the people that actually provide the the care. So it should be clinicians. It should be doctors, nurses, therapists, etc., because they know in a real world scenario what it means to provide this this or this.
0: Um, there's a there's a guy on Twitter who goes on and on about, and I hopefully I'll email him see if, if I can get him on on this podcast. He talks about physician- owned hospitals and one how they're they were restricted um, or or there's something in the in the Affordable Care Act where they couldn't, if it's a physician owned hospital it can't expand or something. Um, mm-hmm. but those hospitals tend to pr- be more efficient uh, in their care. I, I can't think of a reason why you'd want to restrict physician-owned hospitals.
1: Okay, so um, that goes on. Another thing that needs to get taken care of, which is you just reminded me of, is certificate of need. So Maine has a certificate of need legislation, which says if you want to open a healthcare facility, you have to prove that there's a need for it. So in order to prove it, you have to prove it to your competition. That would be very similar to wanting to open a gas station and having to get permission from your competitor to open a gas station.
0: What did it, what needs a certificate of need having a, that that's, so for
1: example, if I say, I wanted to open a hospital in this town or I wanted to open a, I wanted to open a freestanding surgical center, or I wanted to open a freestanding imaging center. I have to obtain special permission from the state in order to build that all under the premises of wanting to keep pricing down. However, study after study has shown that certificate of need keeps prices falsely elevated.
0: Well, because there are less, there are less producers. Yeah, there's
1: less people providing that service. So the hospital associations don't want any competition because if they had competition, they'd have to actually compete. So who did, who
0: issues the certificate of the need of need?
1: and this the state does this uh, department of whatever i can't think of it off the top of my head um but uh i could probably find it out for you uh i think it's department of not health and human service department of insurance Regulate. and i've drawn a blank on it now because it's been a while but you have to get permission from a state agency in order to build that facility Mm -hmm. you have to prove that there's a need for it well, I would imagine that the proof is in the pudding, meaning if I build it and nobody comes, that's my bad decision. Yeah. And I go out of business. But if I build it and people come and keep me in business, then that's a, that proves the certificate of need.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I think about um, it It kind of seems like things are moving in, in uh, a more like corporate direction
1: it is is the department of health and human services i just checked it i had to get off your feed here for a moment to look it up
0: yeah go ahead um it it does seem like there's a lot of like centralization happening where you have um you know northern light sort of buying up a lot of hospitals in maine Mm -hmm. um I mean, do you have any insight into like a, what's a driving force behind that trend? Well,
1: so some of the driving forces that, uh, I mean, some of these smaller hospitals simply can't compete because they're not given the opportunity to compete and they can't see beyond, beyond the industrial complex to, you know, what is Medicare going to pay me for this? They can't really see beyond, they can't see a solution beyond the current insurance industry. So that's Mm -hmm. problem number one. And then the hospitals, you know, Northern Light or Main Health or whomever, they want to expand their footprint because that feeds into their referral base. So they they can they can feed more, uh, you know, more patients into the specialized services. So and then uh, you know, as part of these, um, as part of the the revenue cycle for for um, like Medicare, for example, they can tack on a facility fee to any service they provide. And there's no regulation on how much that facility fee can be. So you could come in for a toenail removal and they're going to tack on a $500 facility fee Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and no one's going to blink. Yeah. So I think that's uh, I think that's a large part of why they're, why they're, now they'll say, we want to continue providing services to the underserved. Yeah. There's going to be some kind of financial model some kind of financial interest for you to take over that hospital or that area or that whatever. Although I I'd like to think you're altruistic. I sense that you're not perhaps as altruistic as you want us to believe.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. Another, another trend in medicine that I think uh, I'm a bit more hopeful about is this emphasis on um like sort of stay preventive care i think they would call it um you have all these you know books coming out about longevity and i think that's where direct primary care kind of has an advantage right because you can you can say hey like i want my blood work done right and and you don't want to have the doctor nor the patient no like the patient and the doctor don't have to worry about is this going to get approved, right? I just want my blood work done. I want this test done. Um, And that, in that sense, the care can be more personalized and you don't have to worry about uh, what gets approved and what is covered and and all that. Well, you could have a
1: deeper conversation about why is it you'd like to have this done? What are you hoping to do with this information? What is the information you think you're going to gain versus the information you're not going to gain? So there's the time factor of being able to have that much deeper conversation because a lot of patients, they'll Google what lab test should I have done? Oh, here's a great example. A fella came in and his employer told me he needed to have a pancreatic uh, cancer screening, the CA test. That's not, a, that's not a screening test. It's the test that we use after we have the diagnosis. It's not a screening test. Well, the employer says, I have to have this. I don't know why the patient, why the employer is telling you you have to have this test. Well, they're telling me I have to have it or I'm going to be in, you know, I'm going to get dinged on my, my employee health program. But I have the advantage of saying to him, here's the limitation of this test. It's not screening. It's a test that we use once a diagnosis has been made. We can sometimes use some of these tests for determination of effectiveness. And sometimes we can't do anything with them but I have the time luxury of being able to say that. Or even better example, you live in Maine. I want to have my vitamin D level done. Okay, why do you want to have your vitamin D level done? So I know how much vitamin D I'm supposed to take. Your vitamin D level is not going to tell me how much vitamin D you need to take because you live in Maine. And you can stand buck naked on the big grassy field on the hottest day and brightest day in Maine and still not get your daily dose of vitamin D. So that level is really not, helpful in the ultimate recommendation now if you want but, to take it, but if you're if your level's low does not mean you should take you should yeah, take so more? so i would look at you and say if your level's low you're going to be taking supplemental vitamin d if your level's normal i'm going to look at you and say you need to take supplemental vitamin d really the only time oh, that the okay. answer is different is if it's too high and then i'm going to say you need to take less <laughs> Okay. But I have the opportunity to educate the patient about that, about the meaningfulness behind that test, as opposed to what they might've ascertained from the Google forum.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I think, um, primary care is probably, um, where you can, where you can start to have more direct care. Um, hospitals, I think are, are always going to be more, more bureaucratic, but, um, I think we we might be headed towards somewhere where it's like, you know, there are some, some doctors that love like the vegan diet. There's some people that love the carnivore diet. And there are some right. people that emphasize heavy running. Some right, some people love heavy lifting. And, you know, I, I it would be cool if like I could just go to like the practice that is all about just getting jacked, you know? <laughs> right. Or You know, like I think hopefully we could get to a point where care is personalized, like hyper personalized, I think would be what I would want to see. Sure. Um, And it's uh, it's practices like yours that I think uh, that give me hope and that I think are pretty cool. So, um, yeah, that's all that I really have for you. I think we hit the topics that I was really interested in but um yeah hopefully someday you know after my medical degree and uh the You're grueling, not done yet. what are you waiting? i for? have i've just finished my first year so um so what are you doing over the summer i'm just doing research i have a little six week break um wow. and then so i got back at it in about a month gotcha. but yeah um and then hopefully when i'm done all of that um you know, I, I'd like to not hopefully work for the man my whole life and kind of oh, have my have. own. Yeah. Now, you're going to have a hard time convincing me going all the way back up to Maine. I think I'm. Oh, I'm listen, come on. South.
1: Come on. It's
0: it's it's vacation land. It's the great north. I could do three months. I'll do three months there. And then, three and then months I'm out. In Columbia or something. I'm in St. Louis right now. So um I think I'm only going. I could go more yeah. south.
1: You've got a bunch of direct primary care practices around you, really? A bunch, yeah. You got uh, Bridget Grinder, Luke Van Kirk. Uh, oh yeah. Let's see. Uh, I think. How do Bridget, you know of them? Oh, they're like they're like, they're part of my tribe. Oh, you have a tribe. Totally. So if we look at uh, Liberty Direct Care, let's look at Bridget. Bridget's right here. Where is she? Yeah. What's your last name? Gründers, G R U E N D E R. How are you? Bridget's first name, Liberty Family Medicine. I think she's over in, uh, where is she at? Uh, where's her address here? Somewhere. Contact. Uh, she's in Columbia, in Jefferson City. So there's that. Then there's uh Command. Then uh, where is Luke? Luke is, uh, and then Luke is, Yeah, Luke is in Springfield and Branson. Luke, who? Luke Van Kirk. Okay. Yeah. Doctor Van Kirk and Doctor Grunder are top-notch people. Just um, let me know if you're going to talk to them, because I'll have to send them a payment to keep their send them a hush payment. You know, they might have dirt on me. I don't necessarily want you to find out about.
0: Okay, that's fair.
1: Yeah, no, I've known them both for several years. They're great folks. Uh, They got a couple sites apiece. Um, They're doing, they're doing fantastic
0: stuff. Cool. Okay. Yeah. I might, I might reach out to them. Um, uh, Yeah. So uh, I think that'll wrap it up, but thank you very much. Oh, thanks a lot for reaching out. I appreciate it. I can't wait to see, you know, uh, episode 1000 here. I mean, I got three years left in med school. I think I can, I can get something going in three years, right? Yeah. So what? So what? What do you
1: plan on doing? I mean, do you just plan on this being like, a, like what you've done here, or, do you, or is it going to be more like a,
0: a weekly venting session, or a combination of the two? Or I, I don't have much of a plan really, just to talk to people that I find interesting, mostly gotcha. in the, in the healthcare space, and I'm really interested in money as well. Um, <laughs> money
1: and money and health. There you go.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so. um, Well, listen,
1: I'm more than happy to do this at any time in the future. If you get bored and you can't find anybody, but I don't, that will be the case.
0: (laughs) All right, thank you very much. All
1: right, I'll talk to you later. See ya. Goodbye.